Thanks for listening to the Best of Coast to Coast podcast and become a Coast Insider to hear the rest of this fascinating conversation and check out recent shows featuring guests sharing stories about growing up in a haunted house that was possessed by an evil presence, a nightmarish encounter with a UFO in the dead of night, and the financial horror stories from those who won the lottery and lived to regret it. Head on over to coasttocoastam.com and sign up for Coast Insider to hear these programs and many more truly thought-provoking shows from coast to coast. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. I love magic. Since I was a little kid, Jim, I've been fascinated with every aspect of magic. I'm not a great magician, but I sure had my little magic kit and did my little thing. It was great. It was fun. I think it shows, uh, uh, I think the, the nature of it, and that's kind of what this book is about, is about a curiosity for the world and a way of looking at the world in an interesting way. And I think that that's really what, what is at the root of all of that. Hopefully that's what is at the root of your interest as well. I'm sure you saw the movie The Illusionist, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Amazing. Great movie. Great movie based a little bit in historical, a lot of fiction, but uh, based in a definite historical time and, and telling, weaving a great uh, fictional story about that time. The trick that he did toward the end where he had the woman come up on stage, put the hoodie on her, and had her stand in front of a mirror, and then you could see different things happen in the mirror that weren't happening on the stage. Mm-hmm. Can you develop tricks that really do things like that? Well, there... Illusions? That's a, that's a kind of beautiful, poetic, fictionalized version that's close to some illusions that were done in the uh, late late 1900s, early 20th century, uh, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, classical illusions done by some of the great stage illusions. They're always a little bit more dramatic and a little more poetic um, in films because magicians didn't necessarily take the time to do that uh, on stage. But those are based, those are all interpretations of illusions that were really done. What do you think of Chris Angel, David Copperfield? Are they uh, you know, pretty the aggressive? The most amazing thing is what's happening in magic right now because there's so many different styles and so many dramatically different styles and ideas and so much creativity being brought to the, to the field. David Copperfield, I just saw him recently up in Las Vegas, still does an, uh, an amazing show. I say still, he's changing the show constantly and always bringing new ideas to it. And Chris Angel has just changed the show as well. So th- those things uh, are always being worked on very hard. There's a lot of creativity brought to the formula, and they're always worth seeing. How did they come up with so many different illusions? How much of it is trickery? And how much is, of it is just you playing tricks with the mind? Well, I mean, it's all trickery in some form, and that's something that we write about in this book. You know, it's, it's either something that's suggested to you, and then you walk away with that illusion, or it's uh, some kind of form of sleight of hand or, or some kind of mechanical device. But, you know, that's, it's all about disguising that within the presentation, and a good performer is... Uh, does a great job of, of uh, disguising that in different forms to make it look like it's mind reading or to make it look like it's, it's uh, some sort of spirit effect or, or, or something that's produced or vanished. All of those things are variations that a great magician can create out of the same raw material, which are those secrets. How did you get involved in magic, Jim? Oh, well, I was a kid performer in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, and uh, there, were, there was a great magic shop in Chicago and great magicians. Um, and so, of course, I think... Uh, People in my generation talk about the magic shops, you know, because that's that's the community that you grow up with. So my brother, my older brother, was interested in magic, and the, there was a great magic shop, and I knew a bunch of magicians. And then I performed through school, through um, uh, high school and college, um, doing doing shows around, you know, kids shows and uh, the occasional 
Scream Social. And then I started working with other magicians, and that was really inspiring because I, I started working on different material for them. I bet you've been to the Magic Castle in L.A., haven't you? Uh, you know what? I'm right now the president of the Magic Castle. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that. It's a great, it's a great club in Hollywood, and, and uh, it really, I mean, it's 55 years old. It's been going strong, and it right now really epitomizes the, that kind of renaissance in magic, the, the, the new approach to, that people are bringing to it. And we get uh, over 700 magicians a year coming through Los Angeles and working at the Magic Castle. So it's a great place to see magic and a great place for, for it's a hot, it's a really a, an experimental laboratory where magic is being developed all the time. You must know our buddy Brandon Scott. Oh, Brandon is fantastic. Super guy, isn't yeah. he? He, yeah. he really is. Well, well, let's talk about some of the myths about magicians that have been told over the years. What's out there? Well, you know, it's funny, um, and that's really what this story, the, the uh, secret history of magic is about, because magicians, um, because it's a deceptive art, you know, that deception is always close to being associated with other things. And one of the things that's happened in magic over the years is that, is that by the nature of it being secretive, people fill in holes in the story, and when they fill them in, they start adding to them. So we tell ourselves myths as well. Magicians tell ourselves myths about the creation of magic. And so we look at old myths from, um, from the Egyptian times, and we say, well, this is the first magic performance that's recorded. Or we look at um, uh, magicians that brag about being involved in, in some kind of... Um, Espionage, and we say that we say, well, that must be a, a an example of magic being used for those purposes. And a lot of that is exaggeration, and those are really the creation myths that we use to kind of honor the art and make it more special than it is. In fact, the deceptions of magic have been pretty consistent through the years, and what magicians have been doing has been consistent through the years. Um, it isn't really that confused with witchcraft. It isn't really that confused with. Um, with psychic phenomena, except at times when it became really popular to do that. And so magicians tell themselves their own myths over the years. Well, that, that, that's true. And, I, you know, I think nowadays people love to go see magicians for a couple reasons. One is to get baffled. Uh, the other is to try to see if they can figure out the trick. And uh... it's, a very interesting, it's a very interesting form of entertainment and clearly one of the oldest uh, forms of entertainment. Uh, but it's also it's also about being mystified without having consequences to it, and that's a really interesting thing. That doesn't happen to us very often in life. It's a it's a reminder, as we say in the book, it's a reminder to all of us that there are things, many things out there that we don't understand, and that's an important lesson because we've always had those as humans. But those things always have certain consequences to us. They always bring a certain level of confusion or a certain level of, of unease. And in magic, what you're really doing is you're able to sit back and enjoy that feeling of wonder, that very basic feeling of wonder, without the feeling of the, of the consequences or the concerns or the other thing that's going to come back and, and bite you in the end. In the old days, uh, the old magicians of the time and the Houdinis, the Blackstones, and people like that, what made them so good? Because they didn't have the benefit of tech te technology that we have today. How did they pull these tricks off? There was, there's always been a, a kind of leading edge of technology where technology is used in magic. But you're right. Those people did not depend on, on cutting-edge technology. Those people were always, always uh, fantastic showmen. 
Uh, and that's, of course, the indefinable thing that's really hard to talk about today because you can't, you can't, you know, summon Houdini now and, and have him perform for you. And there really isn't, isn't even good footage of him performing. Um, so it's hard to it's hard to figure out what was happening on that stage. But the best thing, the best accounts that we have are that those people were magnetic performers. They they made people interested in what they were doing. They made people invested in what they were doing. So when Houdini was chained or put in a water tank and then was covered up on the stage, everyone played that part along with him. Everybody realized what it was like to be inside that tank. And so he became the everyman for, for the audience. And, of course, that's exactly what any great performer tries to do is, is solicit the audience to their side. Uh, absolutely. And a lot of them like to use supernatural-type powers to try to pull them in, didn't they? I'm sorry, excuse me, who, who use supernatural powers? The magi- some of the magicians. Well, they, um, there's always been you know, people on the edge of claiming to have supernatural powers, and I would say that at the point at which it's a vaudeville act, uh, I can tell you it probably pretty safely didn't involve supernatural powers because you had to depend on it working every single night <laughs> uh, when you go from town to town. So there have always been mind readers, uh, uh, people that were involved in mesmerism, people that supposedly contacted the spirits. And, of course, as those turned into acts, those acts were really another level of deception. Those were very sophisticated magic acts, sometimes not always that sophisticated, that involved magic and used magic to create a simulation of supernatural powers. And, of course, magicians were always at odds with psychics or people who claimed to be psychics because they said that they could discern the reality of those acts. Did they think that psychics in mediums were performing trickery? Magicians always have, um, uh, since the mid-1800s, have been battling with psychics and pointing out that they, they are performing trickery and that magicians can get to the bottom of this question because they can discern what's real and what's trickery. And overall, they've done pretty good. Uh, you know, people like Houdini have done pretty good. It, it did pretty well in, um, in John Neville Masculine in discerning psychics and saying this is a fake. But uh, there are famous examples of, of everyone being mystified, great scientists being mystified and magicians being mystified as well. I mean, I remember the Houdini movie. I think Tony Curtis was in it, that he played uh, Harry Houdini. And Houdini was obsessed after his mother died with trying to find a medium and I don't know if he was trying to find the good medium, Jim, or trying to find the bad ones and, uh, and illustrate them to the world. It's, that's a really good question. I think he started when he was a young man. This often isn't said in his biographies. He worked as a fake medium for a little while. And so he knew what that game was. He knew what that game was. And when his mother died, just as you said, he was obsessed with the idea of being able to contact her. Um, and so I think, I think he, you know, was led to looking for real psychics. There was a question of, were there real spirit mediums who could contact his mother? And Houdini, knowing about the, the fraudulent aspect of it, was instantly disappointed in, in encountering just fraud. And he turned that into a crusade. I mean, he really, at the end of his career, uh, part of his show was devoted to exposing spiritual mediums, the frauds that he'd seen, and explaining how they did their tricks. And he saw this as a, as a kind of um, a crusade for him uh, to inform his audiences that these things weren't real. So uh, you're right. He, he first looked for it genuinely, and then I think he sought them out to, uh, to point out to people that it wasn't real. Now, there was another person by the name, his last name was Robert Houghton. Mm-hmm. And uh, who was he? Well, uh, Robert Dan, he was a Frenchman, 
was a was a very influential um, uh, magician in the mid 1800s. And uh, the reason that name is confusing, and the reason that name can be pronounced different ways, as I did. No, that's okay. <laughs> it's because they're because a very young man, uh, uh, a young immigrant to America, um, was inspired by that name, and he pronounced it differently too. And that was a guy named Eric Weiss, who, when he decided to become a magician, took the name Robert Houdin, H-O-U-D-I-N, and decided that he wanted to use that name as his own name on stage, and because he was inspired by Houdin. And so he became Houdini. He added an I on the end of it. And so Houdini's name actually was a tribute to the magician Robert Houdin. Robert Houdin was a really important French magician, very influential, wrote a brilliant autobiography, uh, uh, memoirs about his career. And um, now it's pretty plain, exaggerated almost everything in his memoirs um, in a really amazing, wonderful, literate way. I mean, told a great story. But he exaggerated his own claims to originality, his own claims to innovation. He was one of a number of innovative performers at that time. And he wound up his career with a kind of amazing story in which he went to Algeria for the French government and performed magic to uh, point out to the holy men in Algeria that the French magic was more, more powerful than their own magic. And it's been written up as a diplomatic mission or a, uh, an espionage mission, an attempt to stop an uprising. And we think that while he absolutely did go and perform this show, that a lot of that was exaggerated as well, that he, there was a, some confusion over the nature of that mission and what he was actually trying to do. But it's a really interesting example of magic history, <clears throat> because on that stage in Algeria, we had the old magic and the new magic coming together at one moment. And so you had the, the traditional magic of, uh, of the shaman, the, the Algerian holy men, mm-hmm. that were, who were now encountering European magic. And this was sophisticated magic and scientific magic. I say sophisticated because it was using scientific principles, um, not because it was necessarily any more sophisticated than anything else that anyone was doing. So he fooled them, and he performed a great show, but he was also treated as a showman in Algeria. He wasn't treated as a religious figure. What would an audience prefer, the, the, the stage-type magic or the other type? Well, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, the fashion right now is really for, for uh, close-up magic, and that's a word that, you know, I'd say 100 years ago, magicians wouldn't even have known what that word meant. But what we say, when we say close-up magic now, you know, you can see that at the Magic Castle. That's someone with a deck of cards or a handful of coins, and they're doing magic just for a table of people. Yeah, up, up front and personal. That's right. And uh, that's always been around. I mean, if you read about what magicians were doing hundreds of years ago um, in Great Britain or in France or through Europe or, or even in, in, uh, in India, that is what we would now say is close-up magic. Um, it, it was sleight of hand, it was something small, it was done for a small group of people, and it was, it was to call attention to themselves and then to, to work for tossed coins. But it's interesting, what happened is that after the, the 1900s, there was this resurgence in stage magic. Magic was now big enough to go on stage. It was in vaudeville, it was in music hall. And so there were different, specific different styles of magic that were developed. And I think today, now you can see a little bit of all of that. You know, you can go somewhere and see stage magic, um, which has been popular for many years, and then you can also see close-up magic. You can see someone do something small and right under your nose. And I think I think the fashion right now, actually, among magicians, is for close-up magic. Um, you know, there's a great resurgence in that, and there's been some really sophisticated, 
innovative work done in close-up magic and some great close-up performers. And you've, you've got to have some pretty good sleight of hand if you're going to do close-up magic. It's almost impossible to do it's almost impossible to do that kind of show without, without a, a, a really solid level of sleight of hand. And I think one of the reasons those shows are appealing to audiences is you can perceive that level of skill. I mean, even if you're fooled by it, you understand that that person is really skillful in what they're doing. And so there's a, there's a level to that, that that truly makes it an artistic performance. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.